Welcome to today's webinar compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com. All of our webinars are interactive. We encourage you to pose questions to our guests. The more challenging, the better. And the earlier you get the questions in, the better the chance of having them answered. The recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on YouTube. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's Business Finance Friday webinar. With us today, we've got Candace Payne and Dawn Riddler, two independent investment advisors. Welcome, Dawn and Candace. Hi there, Thanks, Jack. So before we get started, um, just a reminder to start getting your questions into the question box. And perhaps, Stuart, you can just check to make sure all the tech is working this morning before we have a chat to Candace and Dawn. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, Candace. Dawn, always good. Um, just quickly, on the control panel, there's a little high five option. If you can see three pretty faces and hear my voice, can you please give us a high five? Um, and Jackie's presentation underneath. Uh, there we go, Jack. So I've got a few. I haven't got enough yet to n make sure. That, there we go. Okay. They're coming through now, Jack. So all good. And as Jack's mentioned, it's okay. very conversational. So please get those questions in nice and early to get going. But have fun all. Okay. Thank you. Well, before we get started, I just want to introduce our guests uh, a bit more. So this week we've got Dawn Riddler. She has written many columns for us at biznews.com. And Dawn has a background in zoology and also an MBA. And we've got Candice, and we've been chatting to Candice a lot this week about the controversial comings and goings with uh, an exchange control circular. Uh, and Candice, sorry, I've got a spelling mistake on that slide there. It should be pain with an E. Candice is one of my former colleagues at BizNews uh, and very experienced in financial services. I wonder if we should start with you, Candice, and just pick up on where we are with that um, controversial issue uh, involving exchange controls. And just for people who aren't familiar with that, um, perhaps you could just take us through briefly, uh, in a nutshell, what happened with this circular and why it's caused a stir in financial services. Okay, Jackie. So, yeah, the circular has caused a huge stir. It was first um, promulgated by Tito and Bowenie in the medium-term um, budget policy statement, where he kind of um, dropped a surprise in that, saying that inward-listed ETFs and other securities would now be classified as domestic, when previously they had been classified as foreign. Um, and what his intention had been was to make it easier for offshore investors to invest in South Africa because the classification of it um, sometimes hindered how they could invest. The unintended consequences and what has caused all the controversy is that that feeds through to Cisco, um, which is really governed by the FSCA. And Cisco governs... Um, basically your unit trusts, but also Regulation 28 
medical aid funds, insurance funds. And what it meant, if you took it kind of to its natural conclusion, was that Regulation 28 had now been changed. And whereas before we were restricted to investing 30% offshore in our pension funds, it now meant that by using these inward listed ETFs or the RAND denominated ETFs that we've often spoken about on your, on your podcasts, you could now invest 100% of that in your pension fund. And this segued very nicely with the conversation that has been happening around the country for the last sort of 18 to 24 months about people wanting to invest 100% offshore. Um, on the back of the uh, on the back of this um, circular, I think the the three de sort of departments in, involved, which was the Saab, National Treasury, and the FSCA, got together, and um, they realised that the that they probably hadn't thought this through, um, and they needed to reconsider. So they suspended the circular. They suspended that XCON circular, and they have invited comment from industry and the public around it. Um, and so we are now waiting to see what they come back with. And I think that um, the, the conversation out there is that they will start re-looking at Reg 28 because we are behind other emerging markets. So if you look at places like Chile and Brazil, where they allow sort of 50% of their pension funds to be invested outside of the country, 30% um, isn't appropriate any longer. But um, there were a lot of reasons why they suspended that. And I guess we're all waiting now to hear what they come back with um, on the back of all the input that they're getting from the public and industry and the discussions they're having internally as well. Have you so put any input in? I've, have you filed I've, a report to them? I have not personally filed a report, but through the various consulting um, clients that I have, who are more in industry, we have submitted um, various reports to to give suggestions around what can be done. So one of the things is is it's not um, kind of a slam dunk or a silver bullet that everybody needs to have 100% invested offshore. You know, and we can go down the sort of reasons why, but I think that brings in more risk into a portfolio. And it's not just, we, we can't just look at sort of voluntary RAs that people are contributing to and feel like they need more flexibility. We also need to look at the defined contribution big funds, like the government employee pension funds and various employee funds, where potentially the trustees are not abreast of, of the issues. And, um, you know, everyone saying you should be invested 100% offshore suddenly becomes the thing to do. And if you think back to the early 2000s, you know, for a decade, the offshore US and UK markets went nowhere and the RAND actually appreciated by 50%. It would not have been a good idea to be 100% invested offshore then. So there are a lot of considerations to take into account when just deciding what the percentages that needs to go offshore. Um, so for that reason, it'll be interesting to see what they come back with and whether they move that needle at all. Do you think that they should decide for us a maximum uh, asset allocation? Isn't that more for the financial advisor uh, to decide based on where the best returns are likely? Yeah, I think, you know, in a perfect world, in a perfect country, in a country that isn't running the kind of finances that ours are running, yes, it, it would be wonderful for everybody to be making their own um, decisions, but we need to look at the kind of macro essay picture and the outflows that would happen if we suddenly changed um, those sort of regulations. And I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I know there's been a lot of um, speculation around what the government's intentions are around these things, but I think that we do need to look at things like asset liability matching, although that has been poo-pooed. We do need to look at actually delivering to the client what they need 
And that doesn't only mean 100% offshore. It really does mean diversification and trying to match with the asset that you've got, which is your pension fund and the liability, which is your long-term need. And how do you how do you marry those two that the, um, the goal for the end client is they actually have the money that they need into retirement? Thank you, Candice. Before we start taking questions, Dawn, would you like to tell us what your thoughts are on this whole um, tussle going on? You know, I, I think, you know, everything, I, I agree with everything that, that Candice says, you know, especially when it comes to retirement funds, you need to be more prudent. And um, one, not everybody can afford a financial advisor who is au fait with uh, offshore and onshore investing and has access um, to well-priced offshore investments that they can put in a client's portfolio to start with. Um, but the the other thing is that, um, I, and I think it, it's to do a lot to do with the sort of this this very funny year that we've been living in, is that um, there there are certain providers and product providers and that kind of thing who've actually been feeding into the the underlying fear that that has been running right through the country in terms of uh, you know especially when the rand went you know, rand dollar went to 18 19 and and this kind of thing you know that produced a huge amount of of fear that we were you know we were going to become a banana republic and uh, and all those other things and that the we need to get all our money offshore because we were going to flow you know closely follow them we were all going to become refugees and and this kind of thing and you know it it opens up opportunities for perhaps product providers who provide offshore investments that they'd really like Africa money to be flowing into. But, um, you know, I've been saying, and, I, and I've been getting a lot of queries from clients. I need to take all my money offshore. I need to take all my money offshore. We say, hang on, you just just take a step back. And, and you know, to try and generalize it a little bit, you know, my, my thing is that let's sort out your pension here. Sort out what money you need here. Make sure it's prudent in prudently invested and is going to last the whole of your life and you know you can term it in various ways and mostly what we say is that's your income block you know that is the block of your investments that is dedicated for the rest of your life even if you live until 105 into producing you this income anything over and above that is excess and you can do what you like with it you can take it 100% offshore you can take whatever risk is but you have secured your income that you need um, for the rest of your life and you can't touch that and it depends on how big that is and uh, you know so um, the the first question is always in you know dealing with retire retirees and that's where we're talking about at the moment you know regulation 28 and that that kind of thing is all you know around retire retiring and retirees is how much do you need and how much have you got right and um from that you can determine what the what the excess is and say okay right you know you can now you can't put your whole four million offshore because you're not going to get any yield out of it so you can't do any sort of needs matching um but your excess is five hundred thousand so let's take that five hundred thousand and then we'll talk about that separately to to what your your income block is but um you know what people you know once you invest overseas and really investing overseas is really only an equity at the moment. You're not getting any yield from anything. There's no point in going into bonds and that. Yes, you can put a bit of Bitcoin and gold and commodities in there, but essentially it's, it, but that's high risk. And then you add another element of risk, which is the, the exchange rate. 
right? Um, so, you know, it is, it, it isn't just high risk, it's highly risky. So you've got to be, you know, you've got to know um, that you could lose a chunk of it. You could lose half of it and it doesn't matter. Just playing devil's advocate, if you look at Zimbabwe, people were forced to keep their pensions in Zimbabwe and that proved to be very risky because they're, they're, they're basically worthless. Um, isn't that what we need to guard against, Dawn? Well, you know, the thing is that then you have to sort of make the decision, you know, are we going to go the Zimbabwe route? Um, and, you know, I, you you know, but uh, maybe not everybody knows, is that I've lived all over Africa. I've lived in Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Zaire, Madagascar, Mozambique. Um, I have a dual passport, but I also could get a Kenyan passport, an Indian passport, a Pakistani passport. I've got options, wow. right? Um, right? Yeah, you know, sort of diverse colonial background, I think is what they call it. But, you know, but I'm still here. And um, I, you know, we've got a, a critical mass in terms of, of industry and, you know, people that are employed and in world-class industries and investments and that kind of thing that we're unlikely to go the, the Zimbabwe route. And I also, and we're also, uh, despite the fact that we're only half a percentage point in terms of global GDP, uh, you know, we're minuscule. We we punch above our weight in terms of the kind of focus that we're we're under, you know, and it's still part, I think, of the Mandela halo, although that's been maybe somewhat tarnished. But even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mike Pompeo, who, I mean, he's an idiot, but never mind, um, did say, uh, you know, you know, Safka, we're watching you in terms of property rights, for example, you know, so um, whereas they... Uh, you know, may not care too much about what any other, frankly, maybe with the exception of Nigeria does in Africa. Um, they do watch us. And, uh, you know, so they're unlikely to, um, I think, let us get into that sort of um, Zimbabwe situation. That, look, that, I mean, having lived in Kenya, I mean, I was looking at the exchange rate, for example, in Kenya. Now, um, when I was uh, last in Kenya, which is far too long ago, and I'm about to remedy that, but um, the uh, it was about 10 shillings to a rand. And um, now um, the rand, and, you know, so it was one rand, 10 shillings, and, and it was the same to the dollar. It was about 10, 10 to, to one dollar. Kenya is still 10 shillings to the dollar, but we're not you know, at at that level, you know, we've, we've depreciated a good 50% worse than that. So how have Kenya got it right? And we've not got it right. And, you know, so it we I, I, I think Zimbabwe is an outlier in terms of going to hell in a handbasket kind of thing, you know, and I think that was specifically obviously caused by by Mugabe and that acquisition without compensation route that, that he went on, which just kind of completely decimated the country, which is why I think that's the one sort of political change that we need to really guard against and write petitions and whatever else it is, is that, you know, if, if as soon as you start eroding property rights, then you're, you're really, really in trouble. Thank you, Dawn. Before we start taking the questions, Candice, there has been a lot of talk from people about immigrating this year. What are the major questions that have been asked of you in your practice? What are the big questions this year from your 
uh, clients and where have you seen them making mistakes or being surprised in the COVID-19 era? So a lot of them are obviously talking about immigrating and, and what we need to do is try and plan for that in a systematic way, you know, because many of them are sitting with assets in um, pension funds. So put that aside, the ones who are not talking about immigrating yet are obviously asking the question, do I continue contributing to my pension fund given the question that um, Dawn's just answered, you know, around Zimbabwe or, or you know, any other decline that we see in the country. Um, and whether they take the, the you know, they put aside the beneficial tax regime that pensions funds have and they start saving, not necessarily offshore, but just having more flexibility around where they save with their savings in South Africa. So we're having a lot of those um, discussions. For sort of older clients who can, the ones 55 and above, we're having the discussions around whether they mature their RAs, uh, preservation funds, pension funds, into living annuities because living annuities surprisingly have no restrictions on where you can invest and I, I need to raise this as an anomaly so if you're a 30 year old starting to save for retirement under reg 28 you are limited as to the amount of risk you can take on um, i.e how much you can invest offshore but the minute you turn 55 when actually you probably should be de-risking a bit and really focusing on this asset liability matching thing you're now allowed to invest wherever you want because living annuities have no restrictions so we're having a lot of those conversations and obviously trying to rein people back, which is what Dawn and I are saying, that you know the, the investing offshore is not a panacea for a badly planned retirement. Um, you really need to start looking at what somebody has. So there's lots of those conversations. Then I think people have inadvertently had a bit of a dry run for a badly planned retirement where they've either lost their income or their jobs and suddenly that tap's been turned off. Um, and they're getting a first-hand view of what it feels like to have a finite pool to live on and there's nothing coming in. And and I think that that has actually been a terrible, you know, a very hard lesson, but a good lesson because now we can really start having a real conversation about retirement and saving for retirement and what, what that actually looks like, you know, and, and how hard it is to earn money and how much you need to focus on preserving it. So there have been a lot of those conversations also around emergency funds. Surprisingly enough, in my, in my practice, people who have had emergency funds trying to convince them that this this is the rainy day we were saving for, you know, because people kind of look at their portfolio and go, I don't want to touch it. It was like, well, you have to. This is, you know, it, it doesn't get more wet than this. This is the rainy day. So it's been those kind of conversations um, with clients and really hand-holding um, through making those decisions. So a lot of them intrinsically have the answers and know them. They just need someone to kind of go, go for it, you know, like, you know, spend the emergency fund or let's look at retirement um so interesting conversations i must say on the whole dawn have you how have you helped people who've been in real financial trouble how have you have you have, you, have they extricated from long-term savings or what were your sort of emergency steps i i you know most of my clients are already in retirement so you know thank goodness for that um so the ones that are sort of coming into retirement i had a couple of um, people uh, pushed into early retirement, um, you know, because it's uh, from a from a company perspective, you know, if you're not seeing as being seen as retrenching people, it's just early retirement, and it's really rough because, you know, um, it's such an age where people are probably going to find it really difficult to get another job. Um, so those those have been the most most difficult because, um, you know, sort of between 
normally people who are in you know in a salaried position between 55 and 65 hopefully you've paid down the bond hopefully you've kept the kids out the house um and you can actually really start accumulating your funds but now suddenly you've got to that place and now there's no job um so you know it it is really really rough from from that perspective and um you know the it, so and it it's sort of managing those emotions and stopping knee jerk reactions and 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 that kind of thing and so it's basically look you could find work right um you know and i i keep saying it in my blogs and in my newsletters and everything to to my clients is that that you know your best defense against being retrenched or or getting um put on early retirement is to work for yourself right i made that decision when i was 50 so you know um you know also already fairly long way down the line and yes you have to take a few steps back but it's better to take you know that do that decision when times are good not not when you you know you know you've been thrown out the door you know here's your here's your copier box and cheers um so you know that's it and then it's you know if your if your wife isn't working you can send her out to work as well so it's really really tough um it, you know make no mistake you know because you you know the the property market isn't buoyant so you can't just say well like sell your property and, and rent somewhere smaller and even sort of move out and try and rent to someone else that so, you know there's it's really difficult and you just have to try and have conversations with financial institutions to give you some accommodation until you can you can come right but it's that that early retrenchment one that is the killer i think maybe if i can just step in there as well jackie yes. what you two other points that have come to mind around the conversations we're really at the kind of height of the market drawdown so march april this year when the market looked like it was in free fall um, the conversations around that and keeping people invested were quite difficult. So some of my clients were adamant they wanted out um, and, the, you know, some of them didn't phone up. But what it did highlight to many people is what your real risk profile is. So everyone kind of says they're aggressive and they want maximum returns until something like that happens. And that was a real life example, although we seem to be having them, you know, frequently um, of what you really can tolerate and how you really feel about um, losing losing the value of your money and unfortunately some people did um, cash out at that point and they've banked those losses and that's difficult and it's difficult for the financial advisor then to make a decision around when you get back in you know when you get back into the market because the money has to go back in so we've had a lot of um, conversations around that and then for my younger clients who are paying down debt um, I think it was an eye-opener with the decrease in interest rates to see exactly how much you pay in interest, you know, and the savings that were made because of the decline in interest rates. But then the kind of regret of having not tried to pay down bonds earlier, et cetera, because of the amount that, that was actually the interest portion versus the capital portion on things like mortgage loans. So I think that it's been a little bit of a baptism of fire for people with finances, but they really have, the ones who've applied their mind, have got to see how things really work. And then you can start having the real conversations around how we really structure your portfolio, why diversification absolutely matters and why you need it in the portfolio, why you should pay down that. It's, it's not just lip service anymore. They live the reality. Um, and I think that certainly in my practice, that has helped me have those conversations around this time. Hmm. And of course, a big lump sum, more than three months, probably. 
Dawn, yes. what do you think? What sort of minimum lump sum should you have now? Because the, the, the stock advice is three months of salary equivalent. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 more obviously it's more than that. You know, you know, the I, I think COVID has shown us that three months is just not enough anymore. That you know, and the and the thing is with an emergency fund, it doesn't have to sit doing nothing. You can still, you know, get a basic um interest rate out of it. You can even, you know, sort of put it on, you know, into something that, that gives you a little bit more. But um I would say, you know, sort of if you're an entrepreneur, I'd say a year, frankly. You wow. know, I think um yeah, especially if you're running your own business and that kind of thing, you've got got people's salary in that because obviously if you're an entrepreneur, um, you know, and and you know, something like COVID happens or lockdown happens and, and that kind of thing. We don't have we don't have um you know, furloughs and, and things like that. You know, as an entrepreneur, you're going to have to either pay your staff or you're going to have to pay them off one, one way or another. And the first salary to go is yours. So, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you know, I think there's a whole, what I found quite interesting is that there's a whole set of risks and attitudes and that around entrepreneurs and investors who, entrepreneurs are inclined to invest everything into the company. Um, and so when a hard time like this hits, they, they get hit actually even harder because they haven't got, you know, RAs that they could maybe retire from and, and investment. You know, they've just been plowing back every every cent into the company. And now, yeah, they've, hmm. they've now got to try and stop that company folding one way or another. Yeah. So the first so, question is, oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Jackie. So Rudy wants to know more about how how do you pay financial advisors? So obviously it's difficult if you're cash strapped and you think, should I have a financial advisor? But that could be the best money you've spent. But we also know that there are some charlatans out there. And Rudy wants to know how do the fees work and what is considered an excessive fee um, and what's the best way to structure your arrangement with a financial advisor? Candice, what's your view on that? Well, I can tell you how our practice works, and I hear his concerns. There are good and bad financial advisors, like there are good and bad doctors, good and bad teachers, and unfortunately, um, because you know it's such a specialized field of field of knowledge, people often don't know whether they are with a good or a bad financial advisor. So I, I take that. Um, the way that our practice works is the you know, once we've agreed to draw up an uh, investment plan, an overview recommendation, we charge for that um, on an hourly basis. And depending on how complicated it is, um, you know, that can be between one or, you know, probably max five hours. And then we take an ongoing advice fee. And in our practice, it's it's kind of the upper end is um, half a percent. I know that financial advisors can charge up to, is it three or 5% upfront dawn and then a 1% ongoing? Uh, yeah, 3% upfront, 1.5% uh, ongoing. Yeah, if they, if they take an upfront fee, they can only take half a percent. But if they don't take an upfront fee, they can take as much as one and a half. So, yeah, so those there's a range of, of fees that people pay and they take that on the assets that are under advice. Um, you can also go to a financial advisor and just say, look, I want a consultation and then, you know, go away and sort of implement on your own if, if the financial advisor works like that. I think the best thing for really to do is to approach financial advisors and ask them how they work and also have a conversation around how their practice works. Um, and, you know, in talking to them, he'll get some comfort as to whether there's a resonance or not, because not everybody, you know, every financial advisor is everyone's client and vice versa. So I think it it does involve a couple of phone calls 
um, and until you find someone that you're comfortable with and you feel like you can trust with your with your money and that's important from the client's point of view that is very important that you feel like you can trust the advisor you yet know, we often trust only... people and yeah sorry dawn continue yeah you know the the only thing you know we um in the industry we talk about fee for plan um which is a little bit um what what candace does although she also takes assets under management you know so there's the fee for plan and then there's the assets under management the fee for plan is when you go to a financial advisor and you say draw me up a plan and i'll implement it um and you know and this is talked about often on, on webinars and that kind of thing and often get um, investors coming to me and say, oh, you know, they want a fee for plan. Now, um, you know, this is my thinking on this has evolved over a period of time and also speaking to other financial advisors who only do fee for plan, pure fee for plan, no assets under management at all, not a sort of hybrid um, scenario like, like Candice does. My my only problem with, with fee for plan is that that plan will be perfectly right on the day that you submit it to the client and every day that goes past after that it becomes wrong and more and more wrong and after a year it is completely wrong and it actually then sets up both you and the client to fail because they'll come back to you in a year's time when they've decided to implement it they said i implemented it and it's rubbish you said well you know so um with 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 my approach to it is that it has to be almost on a retainer system and that retainer is the, mo the easiest way to do that is assets under management so that you get the ongoing advice in terms of right you need to change it to this you need to increase your emergency fund you need to put more offshore less offshore you need to you know retire from your funds not retire from your funds you know all those you need to do this is interest rates have changed so you need to change your portfolio like this um, as and when you know that kind of thing happens as opposed to doing the plan and tap on the back and get all the tax and everything right and then it just changes it just um, I, I've got a stage where I just won't do it. Sorry I just want to add in there that's not my preference this uh, I completely agree with you Dawn as the client walks out the door and they don't implement that plan becomes more and more incorrect for the client but I think that maybe just to add to the question it's also the it's also the kind of stuff that you can't charge for is unseen the decisions that you stop clients making that might lose them money the fact that you keep them invested through the whole COVID drawdown um is is value add which is kind of doesn't necessarily come out in the in the numbers um it's the tax that you save it's the kind of knee jerks and the panic that you that you tend to kind of damp down that is what Dawn's talking about when you have an ongoing relationship with the client on a daily basis and you're monitoring these portfolios um, and you're getting those newsletters that Dawn talks about and you're getting the input from your advisor and actually you have someone to phone at that time and go, I'm panicking, I want to do this um, and somebody can talk you through it. So those are the kind of the soft things that you don't realize that you're paying for that you're paying for, that you have this person on tap. So yes, Dawn, I'm I'm with you. Rather have yeah. asset management than fee for plan. You know, no, I mean, when we're talking about fees, you know, half a percentage point or one percentage point, and you can say, right, you know, one percent on, you know, on a million is ten thousand rand a year, and and all the rest of it. But you need to put that also in perspective. Is that um, have a look at one percent in terms of what it means in the market. Have a look and see how often the JSC will in one day increase or drop 1% in one day, right? 
and never mind the sort of 20 30 percent that happened you know that sort of very sharp um flash crash that that happened over you know the, the covid period the beginning of lockdowns and that um you know it's it's putting it in in perspective that you know okay you might have to pay me half a percentage point per annum but you know what about the me stopping you dropping 30 percent and you know selling at the bottom and um then me trying to get you you know to to buy again and then you suddenly decided to at the top of the market again it's you know it's you know putting look we, we're both financial advisors this is how we earn our living um but you know one of the thing about financial advice unlike you know salary things is our salaries on full display it's out there in the open there's no secrets you can see exactly how much we get paid down to the cent Thank you very much for that very thorough response. Alexandra would like to know, emerging markets are projected to do well in the next 10 years. Will South Africa benefit from this? So this picks up on your idea that you can't assume that, you, you know, you're going to get the best bet if you take all your money offshore. Candice, what's your view on having some uh, emerging market exposure if you are South African? Well, remember, if you are South African, you have 100% emerging market exposure to begin with. So you need to kind of, you know, factor that into your portfolio. Um, I think we are seeing a global shift away from developed markets towards emerging markets. And things like China and Korea fall into those brackets. But then so do places like Brazil and Russia. Um, you know, India is also looking to be one of those superpowers. So... Yes, this is again where diversification comes from. And if you have a diversified global portfolio, you'll have a lot of the names that are housed in those emerging markets in your portfolios. If you have your pension fund invested in South Africa, you have a lot of exposure to an emerging market. How South Africa benefits, though, and particularly our stock market and the RAND is, and we've seen it now, we've seen it in since um, the US elections, what is called the risk on trade is back on. So people are feeling... Um, good about stock markets, you know, vaccines are all around the corner, Biden's in, in office, we're going to get a more measured and temperate US government. Um, people are feeling like they are okay to take risk, and so they come to emerging markets, particularly South Africa, to look for our yield. So despite the fact that we've had this precipitous drop-off in interest rates, our yields are still high when you look at it relative to other countries, and particularly places like the UK and the US, where, as Dawn pointed out, there is no yield there, there are no interest rates. And so people are buying, you know, portfolio flows would flow into South Africa, and that's causing the RAND at the moment to strengthen on the back of the fact that we have a lot of commodity shares. So our GDP doesn't depend entirely on resources anymore, but we do have good listed commodity companies. So that is the way in which emerging markets benefit as the world kind of moves out of the, the, um, the, the impact of COVID and economies start firing up again. Um, the, Everything does depend pretty much on these vaccines, how fast they are rolled out, who is able to take them, um, herd immunity, th that whole discussion as to whether this risk on trade remains. So it's a very volatile thing that we're seeing and also which countries benefit. So Dawn did speak about us punching above our weight in terms of um, Africa, but in terms of emerging markets, we do too, because our finances are not in good shape, but we have a very high functioning financial system and people, you know, international portfolio flows want to be here. So it will benefit us. Um, the next question would be, do you put 100% of your money in emerging markets? No, you don't do that. Once again, you look at a diversified portfolio, you look at emerging markets where 
you can trust the legislation, you can trust the regulation, um, you know, the companies and the industries that are represented in those emerging markets are the ones that you actually want to hold. So th there's, there's never one answer to any of these. The other reason why emerging markets are looking so attractive is they're coming off a low base. So we've seen the American markets really rally, you know, the, the Dow keeps hitting new highs, the, the S&P does, we've seen the uh, FANG stocks holding up most of the global indices, but emerging markets have been ignored in that. And now people are looking around and going, industry's picking up, um, co consumers are starting to spend, where does all of that input come from? A lot of it comes from emerging markets. So that's why emerging markets are starting to look attractive once again. It seems astonishing that China is still considered an emerging market when you look at the projections for how its economy is going to dramatically overtake the U.S. Dawn, how do you advise your clients on emerging markets exposure? Um, you know, I, I think diversification is the, the absolute key. Um, there are some ETFs out there that are global and kind of water down some of the um, you know, the big economies, they water down a little bit, maybe China water down um, the American influence. Um, and, and so they're much more global and will, you know, have um, exposure to several dozen different countries, not just not not just a handful of them. And, you know, one of the ways to sort of handle that that offshore, you know, as opposed to sort of and, and until such a time as you've got a critical mass um, that you can, you know, diversify into to single shares. But even then, to, to get an exposure to an idea. And certainly if you have a sort of a global ETF, but have sort of satellites around it that have, that are, for example, maybe a bit more China, maybe some Taiwan, maybe some Korea. We've e even put some Japan in there. Um, you know, India comes into consideration. Then you start looking a little bit at at, at South America too. And, and those will switch on and off. You know, you'll sell in and out of them. You know, you've got that sort of global diversification in the core, um, and, but just add sort of sweeteners around the edge as the as it's mostly emerging markets sort of come in and out. You know, we don't have a lot at, right now in the UK, you know, until they sort out their Brexit, Brexit nonsense. Sorry, Jackie. You know, but, um, and, you know, Europe, obviously, you know, and, and, and until they sort of get the look, the COVID is starting to come off and getting under control in that, but it's a bit of a sort of up and down situation at the moment because obviously with lockdowns which the Americans won't do um, does impact their their manufacturing and industry and and um, those sort of things so um, it, it's a matter of it, you know getting as much diversity as you can you know don't don't go and just buy Tesla stock or go and buy you know Amazon stock or or, or something like that you know find a platform that will give you broad exposure to loads and loads of shares and commodities and ETFs and whatever else it is so that you can actually build this or probably and unless you know what you're doing get somebody to help you you know you know actually give a give away half a percentage and get somebody to help you so amazon's an interesting one because it is in the business share portfolio so has helped propel it considerably um, so before we move on to the next question, Rowan has an observation and perhaps you could just elaborate, Candice, on uh, what he means and how people can invest in this. Rowan says there's been a lot of discussion on the FANGs and uh, that people are aggressively peddling funds with the FANGs in them. But people might be interested to know that the South African government's R2048 measured in US dollars has outperformed the NASDAQ. 
I'm not sure how, whether you call it the R two O four eight, but what what are, what are your views on what Rowan is saying here? You know, whenever an industry or a stock or a fund runs, everyone has a lot to comment on and the people who were in it at the time are feeling very smug and the people who weren't in it at the time either criticize it or they jump in um, and, the, and they do the me too thing. Um, yeah. it's, it's a no-brainer that the, that the tech stocks ran during lockdown for all the reasons that we know. I don't need to go into them. Cast your mind back to 2000 when we had the um, dot-com boom and collapse um, when tech stocks were the darlings at the kind of inception of tech. When the companies had no earnings, they had no business model, money was being thrown at them, people were throwing their investments at and they all ended up with um, in, in disappointment. There are a handful of companies that have done well and will continue to do well and I think that structurally growth, which are these tech companies, um, are spurning a new industry and it's not just tech, it's the way that we actually live, interact, play, um, it's everything that we do. Those companies still have earnings and they still have a value and at the moment they are probably very highly valued um, or overvalued. So this comes back to, and I know it's boring and you hear it all the time, it comes back to this diversification thing. Have some of that in your portfolio. You know, if, if Dawn and I, if, if we could sit here and say we know what's going on in the next month, our clients could have said, well, why weren't our portfolios 100% in Tesla? Well, they weren't because there were a whole bunch of risks there and we didn't know it was going to run like that. Um, and we would never have put our clients into one stock. We would have diversified. So my clients very much do have what is going on in the NASDAQ. What is going on in the NASDAQ is also going on in the MSCI, which is a broad-based diversified ETF that covers 26 countries, which is what Dawn's talking about. And the top 10% are those FANG stocks. The difference is, is that the weightings are a lot smaller than what's going on in the NASDAQ. So you can own Apple in the MSCI and it's about 2%, in the NASDAQ it's about 10%, which is why the one runs more than the other. But the MSCI is a great portfolio just to hold if you only want to hold one security. So yes, there's always going to be something that outperforms something else. The point is that you want to hold a little bit of it because you probably won't be holding all of it at one time. Long Do answer. Do to add to that? No, you know, um, you know, Candice and I obviously, you know, singing off the same song sheet, we, you know, um, it's, it's prudent advice, you know, and I mean, I, I often get, you know, a, a phone call and, and that and it's, um, and I, I, I never say this to my client, but I'm sure I can say it here and people won't take offence, is that you have to moderate your grief. Um, uh, you know, it's and and forget about FOMO and and all the rest of it. You know, the thing is, you know, it is what it is. And if you can't, if you if you've got excess money, go and do what you like. Go to Monte Casino and put it all on black. Buy Tesla. You know, do what you like. It doesn't doesn't matter if you can afford to lose it all. Then it's a completely different conversation. But if if this is your, you know, building up to your life savings or is your life savings that you're going to have to live on. You know, you need to you need to be prudent. You need to diversify. You need to switch off. You know, I mean, there, there's there's just so much noise in this. You know, and and it's got louder. Let, let's face. It. I mean, I I think I've told you, Jackie. I've got to the extent where I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I just can't stand the bickering, especially in America. I mean, they just need to put a 
fence around America and let them get on with it or something, you know. <laughs> there is just, you know, and calling people names and, oh, just, and, and threatening, you know, take him out and shoot him and hang him. And, you know, it's just become so toxic, you know, the, and, and you can't separate politics and economics. I mean, that's why we've had the, what, what Trump thinks it's a Trump bump, but it's actually a Biden bump in the last, last month and that. But, um, you know, you have to switch off all that hype and noise. And, and we have them here, you know, we have them here, um, you know, who sort of get on a bandwagon and, and they've got really loud voices and really hammer it in, but you need to sort of take a step back and yeah. So you're not going yes, for a, yes. uh, one of those U.S. passports yet? What? What? what US not. Yeah, so, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I've been to America lots of times, and I've got some really good friends in America, and they're lo lovely people. They aren't Americans; they're actually what you call it, immigrants. They're legal immigrants, but yeah, you know. But uh, it's a lovely place. But yeah, you know, so, they need to get this. Uh, yeah. So Tracy is immigrating. I have no idea where she's going to, but she says if she leaves her pension fund assets in South Africa and immigrates, how does she handle the exchange rate? Candice, what kind of broad brushstroke guidelines do you give when your client tells you they want to immigrate? Um, I usually ask for a lot more detail than Tracy's just um, provided. So yes, where where is she going? Is she is she is she never coming back? Uh, how much of her assets? Does she want to leave here then in an emerging company when we know the currency is going to depreciate? Um, is she prepared to pay the tax if she wants to liquidate those uh, pension funds or preservation funds if she can, if she has retirement annuities? She can't um, unless she financially immigrates before March next year or then waits for three years and proves that she has changed tax residency. So there's a whole bunch of questions that you would have to, you know, discussion that you would have with her. But if she's going and she's never coming back, she needs to consider taking taking her assets with her. Dawn, how do you decide which um, exchange foreign currency to go into from an investment point of view? Well, you know, the, that's, that's a really good question because um, if somebody's emigrating, then you align the currency with where they're emigrating to. That's, that's easy. But if somebody, you know, you always ask the objective, and I'm sure Candice is, you know, why are you wanting to invest offshore? Um, and then you can make the decision from there in terms of what the currency should be, or in fact, whether you should in fact, not in fact take it across, um, but but put it into offshore exposure here if, they, if that's what offshore, the sort of offshore that they're, they're wanting. Um, but, you know, I think something that somebody said to me, you know, or 15 years ago, and as how true up till now, as much as I'm a little bit maybe anti-American at the moment, is that never bet against the dollar. Um, you know, yes, it has ups and downs and this kind of thing, but, you know, it's not going anywhere. Um, and it'll depreciate a bit and get soft and it'll get, you know, the, these kind of things. But at the end of the day, if you don't know, um, you know, where to put your money, the, the dollar's a pretty good bet, you know, unless you want to sort of get into currency trading and then split it across five different currencies and this kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, so m most of my clients, when if they're not emigrating, the money's in dollars. Thank you. So Charles sent a question through earlier today. He said he's 72 years old and he wants to stay in South Africa. He has about 4 million rand uh, and it's currently in a money market fund and he is living and being taxed off the interest. He's not sure whether this amount will be enough for his expenses in the long term. 
and he's he thinks he might live to 85. Um, but who knows? You were talking 105 earlier. Um, Dawn, what's your view on this? He wants to. He's thinking about it maximizing overseas investments via a LISP platform. Uh, and can either life or living annuities meet these objectives? You know, I, th I think the the one bit of information missing there is how much you were expecting out of this four million, right? Um, and you know, from from my experience, um, that that could range from five thousand a month. 30,000 a month, seriously. You know, um, obviously, if it's in interest at the moment, he's probably getting around about 15,000 a month from it. So we'll we'll take that as a, a base that he maybe he's comfortable with, maybe he's not. Um, you know, that's that's the first question. The the second thing is that really you then have to say, okay, I've got 4 million and the client wants 15,000 a month um, and it needs to be sustainable. Forget about, I think I'm going to die when I'm 85. You don't know. You know, and and really, very few people know when when they're going to live, when they're going to die. You know, it's, you know, my ex-husband said he was going to be dead at seventy. You know, well, sixty, I think. <laughs> he's still sixty, I think, still it is, but he's he's gone past that. You know, you know, so you 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 you've got to sort of say, right, this income needs to be sustained because I could live to a hundred. You know, it, it is possible to live to hundred, even maybe beyond that hundred and five. And the one thing I say to my clients when I because that means then you have to take less, right? Because you have to take some of it um, that you live on, but you have to put it back because we've got inflation and the money has to continue to grow so that your income can grow. Um, so, so, so instead of taking down, you know, maybe 6% or 5% and that kind of thing, we're probably down to sort of 4 and 4.5%. Four and but I never want to sit in front of a client. You know, I've done their, their planning. He's now 72. When he's 85, and I'm not going to say how old I'll be, but I'll might be able to drive there, I might have to take an Uber. Um <laughs> and, and say, you know, you know the discussion we had 15 years ago where I told you when you turned 85, your money's gone. Well, guess what? That happens next month. I never want to be in that situation with a I'd rather not have them as a client if they insist on drawing it down and it running out at a certain time. I mean, I know it's it's changed and, and that kind of thing, but I want my clients money to be sustainable for the whole of whole of their life and it doesn't matter when they die. Thank you. Candace. And, and so you know in, in his case yeah sorry don't you, you, you know, yeah so in his case I would build an income block to to supply whatever income it is. If it's fifteen thousand there's not going to be excess to to do offshore. And you know forget about living annuities and, and this kind of thing you'd have to put it in R and then living annuity. You can put it on a list platform. You can put it on any kind of platform, get it to to produce an income. But you would need an income block, and that would mean probably conservative. Um, you know, would be maybe some government bonds, maybe corporate bonds, the, those kind of things to produce an income. But there's not going to be a hell of a lot left over unless he's wanting to take maybe five thousand or six thousand a month, or ten thousand even. You could maybe have half a million that you could play around with overseas. Candice, do you have anything to add to that? I know you've got some similar views to Dawn, but you might have something. I would. Different. So what I would, what I would just add to that is um, the question specifically asked: Should I be looking at living annuities? I'm assuming that money is not in any sort of pension funding vehicle. So the right thing to do is not to put it in a living annuity because the money coming out of a living annuity is taxed as taxed as income. Whereas you can, the money coming off of your investment is taxed slightly differently and sometimes can be 
taxed at, at a lot lower rate. Um, so I so I would add that to it as well. Um, and then if he really is sort of cash strapped and that four million isn't going to get him where he needs to go, he maybe wants to look at putting some of it into a guaranteed annuity. But that, you know, someone would have to do those calculations for him and you'd need a lot more information from from this particular client before you could even start advising him as to where, where to put that money. But once again, just going offshore as, as the bullet for a badly planned retirement isn't going to work. Thank you. So we've got time for two more questions. The, the second last question is from Malcolm. He says, how does he deal with the risk of depending on a single financial advisor versus a financial advisory business? What are your thoughts? So I guess this goes back to how do you choose the right financial advisor? Do you want to go for uh, Dawn? Do you, you work? You work on your own, don't you? Yes, I do. Um, you know, I, I think it, it boils down to what Candice was saying is trust. Um, you know, you've got to find an individual and it doesn't matter whether it's an individual in his own practice or an individual in a larger practice um, that you, um, you know, you've trust the level of advice that, that you're getting from them. Obviously, then it runs into a little bit of a problem um, if they leave that practice and go to another practice. Often what happens in that case that you will get clients moving with the advisor because you know they bought into the trust of a certain advisor rather than than a practice um, you know obviously in in my case I I have a succession plan uh, and it's getting to the stage where um, I'm starting to introduce my successor much younger much better looking male <laughs> um, to, to my clients so that they know that they've got a certain level of, of continuity. But it, it's going to boil down to finding somebody that you can gel with, somebody who talks on your level, somebody when they explain something, you can actually understand what they're trying to say and, and that you can trust that they're making, giving you that advice um, with your own interests in, in, and not theirs in, in place, you know. So, um, I, you know, you, you know me, I'm not a huge fan of what's called a tide broker. Um, because they're limited in, in what they can ad advise you to put it into. You know, they're limited. They have to put you into the products belonging to that particular the company, and, then, you know, that might not be the, the best way to go. But if you go with an independent advisor, it's going to depend on the personality, I think. Candice? Thank you. Yeah, Candice, yeah. do you work with somebody at PR Financial Services? Yes, I have two partners at um, PR Financial Services, Pauline and Barbara. But just to add to what um, Dawn has said is that a client should rest assured that a well-implemented plan doesn't expire the day after your advisor disappears. So you do have time to find another one should you should you want to and should you not want to stay with the successor or for whatever reason. You know, the plan does have longevity and it endures. And the other thing that I think that maybe people are not aware of is that we're all not working in a vacuum. Advisors are very well connected with each other. We're very plugged into the industry. We are on a constant learning curve, education curve with each other and the industry. Um, you know, if we have really sticky client issues in our practice, I talk to advisors that are not in my practice and I go, you know, I've got a client X with this issue, how would you handle it? Because there's not one way to deal with it. So I think that as long as you have an understanding that your, that your advisor is um, kind of at the forefront of what is going on in the industry and involved in it, you can rest assured that, that it doesn't matter whether a single practitioner or part of an enormous setup. You're getting good advice. You really, you really w will be, and it comes down to that trust and resonance thing that we spoke about. Thank you. 
And then the last question, Ian wants to know about the different ETFs and the difference between a feeder fund uh, and an ETF. Uh, Candice, perhaps you could just briefly take us through, you know, what a feeder fund is and when you should invest in it. Okay, so the feeder fund um, and the ETF story has come up in the same conversation as the um, Reg 28 issue that we spoke about initially, but I'll put that aside for a moment. So your feeder funds are your funds where you can invest offshore um, with rands. So you're not going through your Saab clearance. You're not taking your 1 million offshore or getting tax clearance for 10 million and taking that physically offshore and investing it offshore. You're investing it in rands locally. The asset manager is taking the money offshore and investing it offshore, but you are getting the returns back in rands and you need to disinvest it back in South Africa. So that's a feeder fund. It's feeding into an offshore fund. ETFs can work similarly. So some of them are local ETFs. ETFs are exchange traded funds. They're actually collective investment schemes that are listed on the JSE. So they act and look and walk and talk like shares. Um, they can invest in, so normally what they do is they track an index, they can uh, track the JSE or the top 40 or the Indy or the Resi. But I think where this question is going is looking at the feeder funds that some of the ETFs invest in. So, for example, the Satrix suite of global funds invests into the BlackRock iShare ETFs and allows you as a South African to invest in a BlackRock iShares ETF through a Satrix ETF on the JSE. And what that actually is doing is um, giving you economies of scale with regards um, fees. It's If you want to get really technical, it's making sure that the tracking error of the ETF is as small as it can be. The tracking error is how closely your ETF tracks that underlying index. And if you think of the magnitude of a company like a BlackRock or a Vanguard, they can track the indices very closely. Um, I think where this question has come from is that um, there seems to be a little bit of a conversation around whether an ETF that invests in a feeder fund versus an ETF that is physically tracked from South Africa is better or worse. And I would argue they're the same thing. If they're both tracking the MSCI Global Index or they're both tracking the NASDAQ or they're both tracking the S&P, that is what they're supposed to be doing and that is what they're doing. So. The feeder funds are a way of investing offshore without physically taking your money offshore, whether it's through an ETF or unit trust. Um, Ian has another part to this question. He says that the info write-up on the feeder fund states that the fund doesn't make distribution. So how do you actually get your return from a feeder fund and how do you get your return from an ETF, Dawn? Uh, yeah. Um Often, often what happens, well, ETFs will pay out, I think, it's twice a year. Um, they will accumulate light, light dividends and, and that kind of thing. What the, the feeder funds are inclined to do is is mop the, um, you know, dividends or whatever yield that comes in back. I think we've lost Dawn. Candice, would you like to pick up on that final piece of the question? Yeah, so you get um, funds that are called roll-up funds. So the difference is, is Dawn coming back? Dawn, we, you broke up there. Do you want to repeat? That? Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, my, I think my connection is, uh, yeah, decided set Fridays come early. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, Often feeder funds and ETFs will use those distributions to pay fees first. 
before um, mopping them back up into into the fund or paying it out in in the case of of ETFs. So in in some cases with some feeder funds that um, offshore feeder funds, um, those distributions are almost wiped out um, by fees. Okay, so that could be quite costly. Well, thank you very much. That's um, before before we go. Um, Candice, would you like to share your top tips for what should we do with our finances next year? How are we going to all make sure that our personal finances are in better shape than they have been in 2020? We're going to have to work harder and spend less, Jackie. Now, without being facetious, I think that what we've learned through 2020 is that we need to apply our minds to our finances as much to every everything else. That emergency fund has to be intact. And if you did have this uh, dry run um, looking at a, an unplanned retirement that wasn't well funded, take the time to really to really put the finances in place. If you're not speaking to a financial advisor, speak to one. If you want to do it yourself, immerse yourself in the knowledge, but don't ignore it. It's, it's not something that goes away and it's not something that fixes itself on its own. Thank you. And um, Dawn, what are your top tips for us before we head off to our holiday and start thinking about how we're going to change the way we run our finances? You know, the one one thing that I started to do, I think, 10 years ago that that made a huge difference to my practice and and my own personal wealth and that was I actually put together not not a resolution, but a plan every year, my own financial plan that, uh, you know, I used to be in marketing. So it's actually and I've got an MBA. So it's actually a, a, a proper business plan, but it's on, on a personal basis. Um, and that actually made a huge difference to my focus um, when it came to to my practice and, and how I was going to build it and and what I was going to do. You know, spend the time to think about not just, you know, oh, I'm going to earn more money or whatever it is, but how are you are going to do it? And what action plan and what qualifications you need and, and all of those kind of things to actually put a personal marketing plan together, um, you know, and, the, you know, instead of a resolution, I have one word for the year. Right. Obviously, last year's word got kind of like lost. I think like most things that do in 2020. But, you know, if you can sort of put this plan together and have one word that sums up what you're going to do, you know, whether it's, you know, to to grow or to preserve or to invent or to create whatever it is for that year to have a kind of a, a theme that goes through your your personal plan. But um, that that is the one recommendation I would make to people is actually, you know, spend a bit of time and put together a, a plan and, and file it and refer to it from time to time. Can you share what your word is for this year or haven't you decided yet? I haven't really decided yet, you know. <laughs> It depends on my. I, it's probably it's probably growth. Um, I've um, yeah, going to be yeah, expanding my horizons quite substantially. So I think probably growth. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Dawn and and Candice uh, for joining us today, and thank you to everybody who attended the webinar. If you have any questions or want to get in touch with Dawn or Candice and can't find their details, here are my details and you just send me an email and I'll forward your details to them. So thank you very much and I hope you all have a good holiday and we'll see you next year. You too. You thank too, you. Jackie. Bye. 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 Thanks, Jackie. Bye. 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 Bye.
thank you for joining us for this webinar, which is compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com. A recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on YouTube. From our team, until the next time, cheerio. Thank <laughs> you.